Today's reading is from John chapter 1 and I'm reading verses 14 to 34. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me and has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the, God, the one and only who is at the Father's side made him known. Now this is John's testimony that uh, when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who, who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. And they said to him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do they say about yourself? And John replied the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptise if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptising. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but this reason I came baptising with water and was and was that he was able to reveal to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come come down from heaven and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptise with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit will come down and remain on him. You will baptize with, he will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. Alright, so this is the second in our series looking at the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to be working through the first uh, four and a half chapters or so this term. And like I said last week, it's, uh, it's, it's a great way for us to get to understand exactly who Jesus is. From John's perspective, okay, John, youngest of Jesus' disciples, writing about 20 years after the other disciples. He's bringing some new insights. He's telling some stories that the other gospel authors don't have. Uh, and this is an, another good example of how he just changes the focus slightly to help us understand more about who Jesus is. But before we get uh, into that, I want to start by talking to you about uh, a song off this album, the second single off Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds 2011 album is called uh, The One I've Been Waiting For. And I'll just read to you uh, the second verse from this. It's a classic cave, it's haunting, uh, it's mellow and yet tense, it's, it, it's awesome. Um, lots of you I know are uh, huge Nick Cave fans. So, here we go from the second verse. As you've been moving surely toward me, my soul has comforted and assured me. 
that in time my heart, it will reward me and that all will be revealed. So I've sat and I've watched an ice age thaw. Are you the one that I've been waiting for? In the song, uh, there is a girl that's drawing nearer and nearer to Cave and as he's sort of becoming more and more aware of her in his orbit, he's thinking to himself, you know, is, is this the one that I've been waiting for? My, my, my hope, the, the, the partner that I've been looking for, the, the person that's going to bring me meaning and, and spark something in my life. Are you the one? He's singing it uh, to her, but, but she can't actually hear it yet. This is the thoughts of his heart. And it, it's, it's longing, you know, it's this deep desire for I've been hoping and waiting. Is this the time when it's finally going to be revealed? Is this the one that I've been waiting for? And I think it's really a great song to, to help put us in the framework or the mindset of what the Jewish people were actually experiencing in the time of Jesus. Because for 400 years, since they'd returned to the promised land, they had been waiting for someone. Their hopes rested on an anointed one, one who was going to come and rescue them. And there's all sorts of things in the Old Testament. This is just a small little snippet of some of the things that were said about this Messiah, this promised one, this anointed one that was to come. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He'd be called God's son. We're going to talk about what that means. They'd be a descendant of David. Uh, They'd be preceded by a messenger of some sort. They would be acclaimed. Now, there's all sorts of verses in the scripture after Jesus comes that we realize we're talking about him. But even before Jesus sort of opened people's eyes to say, this has all been about me, there, were, there was still an understanding amongst God's people that they were waiting for the anointed one. And we're going to see here that they think that maybe they found it. But John the Baptist is going to have to say, eh, you're not quite right on this one. We need to look in a slightly different direction, okay? So, the way we're going to work through this today is we're going to think about who is John in this passage, then we're going to think about who Jesus is, and then we're going to think about what this means for us. So, let's jump into this. Who is John? John the Baptist, classic figure from, you know, kids' Bibles and all that sort of stuff. Uh, He dresses weird with his rough camel, you know, sack sort of a deal. He's got a weird diet. He eats locusts and honey. Uh, Not my thing, but, you know each to their own. Uh, also, he lives out in the desert, okay? And that's important because even though he lives a long way away from the city of Jerusalem, which is kind of the center of all religious activity, okay, crowds are starting to go and see him because been, he's been preaching this message of, of repentance, to, to come and be baptized, to cleanse yourself, to get ready for the coming of the Lord. And this is getting such a big crowd coming out to see him that the religious leaders down in Jerusalem are like, we need to find out what is going on with this guy because the people are just, you know, starting to go nuts about him. They're traveling, you know, for, for miles and miles to go and see him. And so it says in verse 19, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Right? Who are you, man? Like, they're just coming out of the desert with your weird clothes, your weird diet, preaching about God and people loving you. Who are you? And you can tell by the questions, there's this sense that they're not just like wanting to know which town he's from. They're wanting to know, are you the one that we've been waiting for? And John gets this. And so when they ask him, who are you? Even though we're not told that they're asking, are you the anointed one? Are you the promised one? He says, or John describes what he says, He did not fail to confess, but confessed 
freely, I am not the Christ. Right? This is the equivalent, uh, I'm completely and totally not the guy. He could not say it more emphatically. I am not the Christ. Now, it's a good point uh, to mention here that Christ is, of course, not Jesus' surname. Uh, it's not like James snared Jesus Christ. That's not how that works. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. And alongside that idea of him being the anointed one was all this other stuff that people were hoping for, that he would be the saviour, the one to rescue the people, the one to be uh, the ruler of God's people, that sort of idea. So when John says here, I'm not the Christ, that's not the same thing as him saying, I'm not Smith, but rather him saying, I'm not the anointed one. And so, the Jews from Jerusalem, they listen and they hear him and they say, okay, not the Christ, cool, cool, not a problem, uh, but we know our Bibles. And in Malachi chapter 4 in the Old Testament, it talks about this guy, Elijah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, who's seemingly going to come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And on the great and terrible day of the Lord, that's when we think the Lord's anointed is going to come back. So maybe you're Elijah coming before the anointed one. And John says, I'm not. Now, this is where it gets a little bit awkward. Because it turns out in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, after John the Baptist dies, that Jesus is like, actually John was Elijah. Now we assume he didn't know. He's a humble guy. Maybe God hadn't revealed that to him. But Jesus says later, actually he is kind of Elijah. But, we're gonna, but we don't need to get too hung up on that. I think we can just safely assume that John didn't realize himself that that was the role he was playing. Although he does understand what he is doing. But they say, okay, hold on. If you're not the Christ, and if you're not Elijah, could you be the prophet? Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in the Old Testament, there's this verse that says that Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Like maybe, maybe this is, maybe that's who John is. Maybe he's the prophet. And John says, no. And you can see, John's answers are just getting shorter and shorter, right? It's like, I'm completely, totally not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. There's this sense here where he's, he's actually totally uninterested in talking about himself. And we're going to see why. It's because his job was not to talk about himself, it was to talk about another. Now at this point, you can imagine the Jews in Jerusalem getting a little frustrated. They've come a long way to find out who John is. And so they're thinking to themselves, bro, could you just give us like something to take back to our bosses down in Jerusalem? We're going to get a hard time if we've got nothing to give to them. Throw us a bone here, man. Or in the Bible's words, uh, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You're deflecting, John, but what do you say about yourself? And he says, well, you've been on the right track, go into the Old Testament, try and figure out who I am, but you're looking in the wrong place. Alright, you've got to go to a man, Isaiah. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. This is great because even when John has a chance to talk about who he is, he doesn't even say that he's a person. He's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm just a voice. That's all I am. I'm just a voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now this, when you think about it, it's kind of exciting, right? Yes, I actually am one who is preparing the way for the Lord. This should be big news. Everyone should be excited about this. But the response that he gets from some of the Jews is so tragic, it's, it's kind of funny. 
the Pharisees were the religious, kind of the ruling religious group at the time, and some of them had come up with these Jews from Jerusalem. And what they say to him upon hearing this is, Pharisees have been sent question him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Let's think about this for a sec. He's just said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness that the prophet Isaiah talked about 800 years earlier to prepare the way for the Lord coming. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, but how come you're doing that baptizing thing? Now, the Pharisees did tend to get a little bit hung up on rules, particularly their own rules and their own interpretations and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, like, come on, guys. I feel like we're missing the point here. It's not about, is John baptizing? It's about what he just said, which is, he's the voice that's making way for the Lord. But John, he's a cool dude. He's not fussed by this. He's not going to get sidetracked. He says, I baptize with water, but among you, stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John, again, they keep asking John, who are you, who are you, who are you? Why are you doing what you're doing? And he says, well, look, what I'm doing, baptism with water, it's a symbol of cleansingness, or cleanliness and and being washed of sins and all that sort of idea. But you know what you really need to know about? You need to know about the one who comes after me. That's what you really should be focused on. Because that guy, I'm not fit to take that pair of shoes off. That was like the lowest of low jobs. Taking the shoes off was an actual job they had back in the day, but it was for like the lowest of servants to do. That's like the, the servant that the other servants make fun of. That was his job. And he's like, I'm not fit to even be that guy for the one that's coming. All this happened to Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Always nice when the Bible tells us where stuff's happening. But then, the next day, after we've just had this exchange with the Jewish people from Jerusalem, the anointed one cometh. All right, we're going to get a picture now of who is Jesus. That first half kind of looking at who is John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But now, who is Jesus? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Fair bit going on. We're going to take it verse by verse, break it down so we really get a clear sense of what's happening. Okay? First up, verse 29 now. He says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Weird little phrase. We're very familiar with it. As Christians, we've often heard Jesus described as the Lamb of God. However, this was not something that was particularly familiar to people from the Old Testament because the, the phrase isn't there. There's lots of lambs, okay? But nobody would have been totally sure which lamb John may or may not have been talking about. And this idea that he takes away the sin of the world, well, there was a scapegoat that kind of symbolically did that, but you know, you can see the problem. That's a, that's a goat, not a, not a lamb. And so, lamb of God, what, what, what's going on here? Now, 
Commentators today still argue about it. I think John's probably referencing Isaiah again because that's where we see this idea of sins being dealt with and a lamb uh, coming together most closely. So it says, oops, uh, there in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 12, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then verse 12, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's my hunch that's probably what John has got in mind. He's already referenced Isaiah in regards to himself. Seems to make sense to me that maybe he's got thinking about Isaiah here in the background again. But either way, whatever John had in mind at the time himself, the Lamb of God God is clearly going to be a sacrificial figure. Right? Lambs, it didn't go well for them in the Old Testament, typically speaking. And so when we talk about the Lamb of God, we're talking about a sacrificial figure. Now that's, again, kind of weird, right? He's been talking yesterday about how he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, and now he's talking about one who's going to be sacrificed and take away the sins of the world. Not just the Jewish people, even. The sins of the world. It's kind of a recurring theme in John. He's Jesus is being viewed not just as the saviour of the Jewish people or Israel, but as the whole world. And that pops up again and again. But that's what Lamb of God kind of going there with that. Then he said, this is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Last week we heard that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see in verse 14 of chapter 1 that the Word became flesh. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the one who was there in the beginning. When John the Baptist declares that he was, he has surpassed me because he was before me, he's not talking about like chronological birth order. John was actually like three months older than Jesus. He's talking about the one who was there in the beginning. This is one who's not like any of us. This is one who is before me and before all of you also. He is the preeminent one. And then he says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, this is interesting, right? Because the day before, he got asked the question, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? And he kind of takes that as an opportunity to say, not about me, guys, it's about the one that's coming. Now he says, actually, the reason that I have been baptizing is because it's through these baptisms that the one is going to be revealed who we are waiting for. And then he drops some knowledge on these guys by telling them the story about how he baptized this guy, and this is what happened. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Now again, this is why it's really important when we read our Bibles that we understand, we have to understand what was happening in the time when the Bible story was written so that we can understand it clearly. Otherwise, we can take stuff that we know and sort of bring it into the text and get a little bit confused about what's being said. Okay? So we've got three more points to come from these verses here. First one is, what does John mean when he says, this is the Son of God? When we Christians think about the Son of God, what do we think about? 
I may be wearing masks, but you can you can have a shot. Pardon? We think Jesus, absolutely. But when we think Son of God, what do we think that title is talking about? God's heir. Like we're, we're thinking Trinity, right? Yeah? Like that, that when we think Son of God, we think God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's what we do. But is that what John's talking about here? Remember, Jesus hasn't died and risen again yet. Jesus has not yet performed that miracle that's going to reveal most clearly that he really is God himself. We're going to see through the Gospel of John that John keeps on making, sorry, that Jesus keeps on talking about his equality with the Father, that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, all sorts of stuff, but none of that's happened yet. So do we think that John the Baptist had a completely Trinitarian understanding of who God is at the moment? Probably not, right? So what's he talking about when he says, this is the Son of God? Well, like I said earlier, there was this Son of God figure in the Old Testament that was tied to the Anointed One, the one they were waiting for. But it wasn't like a divine, heavenly figure. It was a very human one. So in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, uh, it talks about how God said to King David, the greatest of kings in the Old Testament, that one of your sons is going to come after you, and God says that I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, it kind of applied to Solomon originally, but Solomon doesn't totally fit the bill, and so there's this sense that somebody from David's family is going to come back and be the king and the ruler of Israel. So when John says here, he is the son of God, It's very, very similar for those guys back then to be hearing, he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He wasn't making a statement about Jesus' divine nature, although Jesus is that too. I'm not in any way trying to say he's not. But when John said it here, what he's saying is, this is the one you've been waiting for. And he says that the way that he knew this was was through the Spirit of God. That I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Not as a vision, he actually saw a dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, land upon him. And when the Spirit came and remained on him, I knew this was the one. And this is the thing. It still works this way for us. We can't know who Jesus truly is without the work of the Spirit in our lives. When I was in Melbourne University, uh, I had a lecturer... And he was taking a course, something that was like uh, Christianity and English literature or something like that, Christian traditions and English lit, something like that. Then this guy had read a fair bit of the Bible, but he didn't believe in Jesus, not at least in the sense that he was the Son of God. Now, how, how can you read the Bible and, and hear these stories about Jesus and his death and resurrection and all that sort of stuff and not believe in him? Well, it's because the Spirit hasn't worked in your heart to reveal that to you. That's when we, when we pray for salvation for people, when we pray for a deeper understanding of what, we want, of what God wants us to do, searching the scriptures is great, but what we also need is a work of the Spirit within us to change our hearts so that we might know him truly. It was through the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus that John the Baptist understood this is the one. He said, I did not know him until the Spirit came down. And for all of us who believe in Jesus, if not for the work of the Spirit in us, we could not know Jesus apart from what he has done in us. If you are wanting to know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, what you need to pray for is, dear God, please send your Spirit to reveal Jesus to me. That's the prayer for us. Now, 
One last thing on the spirit in this passage, because we've got this uh, little reference here where he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's worth just spending a couple of minutes on this, because this has uh, become a, a much debated idea in the last century or so of Christianity. And I always want to be careful when I talk about different Christian traditions, because we're not trying to lay the smack down on anybody. But I think so we're clear it's important to talk about a little bit. Because some Christian traditions would teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like this second baptism. You get like your water baptism, right? And you become a Christian. But then you need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit to be sort of full of God's power and all this sort of stuff to, to live a holy life and to tell people about Jesus. Now, I don't have time to go into this fully, but I don't think that that's what John's talking about here. A couple of reasons. One, you look through the history of Christianity, the idea of there being a second baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's, it's pretty late. It's like a 20th century idea when it really starts to get steam, and yet the gospel had been proclaimed for 2,000 years before that. I think there's a better way to explain some of the passages that uh, people who hold to that idea look at in the New Testament when they talk about a second experience and that sort of stuff. I think there's better ways to explain that. And also, I think that when you start to divide Christians into those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and those that have not, you sort of create this two-tier Christian idea. Like there is, you know, the, the super awesome on fire Christians and the, and the, you know, sometimes negatively like, you know, dead Christians. Presbyterians, I got, a, I got bad news for where we normally fall in that little. But this thing, to say that we don't think that there's a second baptism in the Holy Spirit is not to deny that there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it is not to deny the extreme importance of the work of the Spirit in our lives. I think here when John is saying that Jesus will come and baptize in the Holy Spirit, what he's talking about is he will send his Spirit to change our hearts so we can believe in Jesus and be joined to him and experience all the blessings of salvation. When we look at Romans and we talk about the idea that we've been baptized into Christ's death, It's through faith in him that that happens. And how is it that we have faith in Jesus? It's through his spirit, just as John has the spirit of God revealed to him who he is here. And the spirit is absolutely what empowers us to tell people about Jesus and to to live a holy life. We, We can't do that without the work of the spirit, but it's not something where we need this second baptism to get it. When we believe in Jesus, that's ours. Because the spirit of God comes to dwell in us. So it was just like a little... Brief excursus, because I thought that would be worthwhile mentioning. But to finish up with, okay, how should we live in light of these truths? I think it should be pretty clear from uh, the way that we've looked at this passage that Jesus is the one that the Jews of the time were waiting for. Now, clearly, the way the Pharisees responded just because he was the one they were waiting for doesn't mean that they all recognized it and understood it. And we're going to see as we work our way through John's Gospel that for some of them, they just won't get it. But for others, bit by bit, this is going to become clear to them this is the one that we've been waiting for. But here's the interesting thing. Regardless of whether you are believing in Jesus this morning or not, Jesus is still the one that we're waiting for. First up, if you're here this morning and you're not believing in Jesus, let me tell you how he's the one that we've been waiting for. Uh, it said in that song uh, that we looked at before, that at the end there, it asked that question, are you the one that I've been waiting for? Are you the object of my desire? Are you the one that is going to be the reward for the hope that my heart has had? Are you the thing that is going to complete me? Are you the thing that's going to give me meaning? Are you the thing that's going to give me purpose? Are you the one that's going to make it all okay? 
And what I want to say is, is that Jesus is the one who makes it all okay. Not in the sense that he takes away all of our pain. Not in the sense of the fact that all of a sudden everything is sunshine and lollipops. But he's the one who sets us back into the place that we were meant to be as children of God. That longing that we have in our heart, that deep, desperate desire to be home, to have someone, to be with someone, that is our desperate, deep desire to know God. Whether we've understood that's what the longing was or not. The Bible teaches that because of sin, we've all been separated from God. We've been born into darkness and we need to come into the light. We need to come back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And it's through faith in Jesus that that happens. And if you've been longing and desperate and searching for that that hole to be filled in your heart, Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that made you, that came into this world to rescue you, and you were built to worship and love him above all else. He's the one you've been waiting for. But, if you're here this morning and you're already believing in Jesus, Jesus is still the one that we're waiting for. Not in the sense of waiting to know him. We know him through faith. We understand that he is the Lamb of God. We understand that he came into this world to save us through his death and resurrection. We understand that he made the world and everything in it. But we also understand that after his death and resurrection, he ascended to be with the Father. And we're promised that he's coming back again. That our time of waiting as Christians is not over. We don't yet have everything that we have been promised. That what we're in now is sort of this in-between time, the time between the coming of the Lord the first time around and his second coming. And what's interesting is, is that just as he was called the Lamb of God in that first coming, his return is also talked about in terms of him being the Lamb. So this is from Revelation, chapter 9. John, the author of John's Gospel, He's had this heavenly vision. And he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. He's in the heavenly realms, and he's looking upon all these people from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, a symbol of holiness, and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And a little bit further down, talking about all those who believe in the Lamb, who worship Him. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When we come to believe In Jesus, in this world, we are given the privilege and the right of becoming a child of God. And that is wonderful news, but there is still pain and heartache and suffering and difficulty and challenge and hardship and all sorts of junk that we still have to deal with in this world. And God's promise to us is that while every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm is ours now, guaranteed, we've been given that the fulfillment of that, the fullness of everything that we're going to get, hasn't come yet. Just like the Jews in Jesus' time were waiting for the Anointed One to come, so too we still are waiting for the Anointed One to come back. And His promise is that on that day, none of us will hunger. 
None of us will thirst. There'll be no more pain. And there'll be no more sorrow. And so, we should be able to empathize with the Jews back in Jesus' time, desperate for a Savior to come. Now, the good news is that we understand who he is much more clearly. In that Nick Cave song, it talks about, you know, that all will be revealed. For us now, all has been revealed. We know who Jesus is. He is the divine Son of God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the Son of David that we've been waiting for. He is all of these things, and he's told us what he's going to do, that he's going to come back and remake this world and end all pain. We see it all now so clearly, but we still wait. And as we do, we're to live lives of holiness, to prepare the way for the Lord, to live in obedience to him, to put sin to death, to love one another, as we look forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. I'm going to pray that we do that well now. Father God, thank you so much for sending Jesus into this world. Thank you for John the Baptist and the way that he proclaimed that he was here to make straight the way for the Lord. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed to us who your Son is. Thank you, Father, that we have a greater understanding than even John the Baptist did when he came. Thank you, Lord, that through your death and resurrection you have revealed yourself to us and that through faith in you, your death and resurrection saves us. And we pray, Father, that as we walk in this world, that we would know you truly. We pray for anyone here this morning, Father, who doesn't know you truly, that your spirit would work in them and that they would have the gift of faith and they would believe and trust in you and we could welcome them into your family. And we pray, Father, for all of us here who do know you, that, Lord, that you would be at work in us to help us wait well, to prepare ourselves for your coming, to put to death sin, to love one another, and to look forward to that great and precious day when you will return and make this world completely right. And we rejoice for that good gift that we have to look forward to. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.